0: yeah welcome to the compass podcast featuring chris shandro and the compass team we hope this message is just for you hi everyone uh, my name is luke DeLong. like chris just said i'm really excited to be here uh, pinch preaching for you guest speaking for you um, my my lovely beautiful wife and partner is roxy she's sitting right here and yes yes and uh And we also have a beautiful, lovely daughter named Frankie who's out in the nursery right now. Um, She's one and a half. She's gorgeous and lovely. Um, We are newer to Compass. We've been coming here probably since around December. And when we're not here, we actually split our time at church at Bloomington Wesley, which is a United Methodist church on Washington Street. And the reason being is because Roxy and I both come from a Methodist background. I've preached in Methodist churches, pastored Methodist churches. Roxy is currently the director and campus minister of Merge. It's a United Methodist campus ministry on ISU's campus that ministers to to Heartland, Wesley, and ISU students. Uh, We both went to... Uh, Methodist seminaries Uh, so needless to say John Wesley is a huge part of our lives and I think that we have 26 or 27 pictures of him just in our bedroom no no is that weird that's not weird no but uh and and there's an unwritten rule in the Methodist world that a sermon needs to be uh, completed in 12 to 15 minutes and so, amen, but, but I asked Chris, how much time do I have? And he said 20 to 35 minutes, so who knows what's going to happen? I have no idea, it's going to be fun. Um, so yesterday, I was shaving my head, and I always feel like I preach better with the freshly shaved dome. And so... Oh my guy. And so I'm I'm shaving my head and I'm thinking about our family vacation that we just took. Roxy, Frankie and I just took. We went to San Diego a few weeks ago and it was glorious. It was lovely and we were so excited about this trip. We had been saving money for it and then we finally decided we're going to San Diego. So we hopped online. We bought the tickets to the San Diego Zoo bought the tickets to Disneyland because Anaheim's an hour and a half away, got the Airbnb, we got the the tickets for the plane, everything that we needed ahead of time, so super pumped. And then about two days later, (coughs) excuse me, Roxy gets an email from American Airlines. And it's like, hey, we're so glad you booked your tickets through us. Would you like to upgrade your tickets to first class? Here are all the things that you can get if you bump up to first class. And Roxy's like, well, that sounds nice we'll just take a little look see but they didn't add the price in there so she clicked the link and she saw oh yeah she clicked the link and she saw that if you wanted to bump up to first class it was going to be $200 per ticket 400 extra dollars so Roxy just approaches me hey what do you think about this I'm like, man, the perks do sound really nice, but I will gladly sit in the back of the plane with the rest of the poor. Like, I don't know. $400 is a lot of money. So the day comes where, you know, you you hop on the plane, and if you've ever been on a plane before, you know the drill. You, you wait till your gate's called. You, you walk down the jetway. You get on the plane, and you turn right, and you're staring at everybody who's in first class, and you know full well how much they've paid to sit in those comfy leather seats. So it happened to us. We got on the plane and walked on the jetway and I turned right and there I am face to face with all the first class people. And there was one guy sitting there, he was drinking a green smoothie, but it wasn't vegetables and fruit, it was actually pureed $100 bills, and And then then we started walking through, and there was a guy to my right, he had a top hat and a monocle on, and when I walked past him, I said, hey, don't pass go, don't collect $200, and and he went, meh, you know, like a rich person, And, and no, I'm kidding, none of that happened. We hopped on the plane, we didn't make eye contact with anyone, we walked to the back of the plane where we were sitting, hoping that our one and a half year old wasn't going to make everyone's life chaos for the next four hours next four hours but we took off everything was great we took off the plane was in the air and this the flight attendant walked from the back of the plane into the front of the plane into where the first class setting was and she turns around and she shuts the curtain which separates the nobles from the peasants and and I started laughing out loud because this curtain was sheer Like, it was very sure. You could see colors very well through this curtain. It was was a very thin piece of fabric. And it didn't even close all the way. There was like a three-inch gap on both sides of the curtain that you could see into. So I thought that was funny. I was laughing that, hey, there's not really much separation between us. So I lean over to Roxy. And I say, now we know how much segregation costs for American Airlines. And I'm laughing. She's not. She shakes her head at me per use, And she's like, stop judging people for where they sit on the plane. Which, she's totally right. But I still think I'm funny. And so I'm laughing about it. And, and it reminds me of a time in my life where I was actually nearing the end of my ordination process to become an ordained pastor. Now, I know in different denominations, different settings, uh, the requirements and the time, the length of it changes. But I actually, it took me eight years to become an ordained pastor. And in that eight years, I went to school. And then I had to pastor for a few years. And then at the end of that eight years, you know, you kind of start having more and more meetings. And this board of people decides if they think you should be ordained. So I was about in year seven, and I had this meeting where I came into this room, and I sat down with four gentlemen, and they're all pastors, mind you, and they asked me how my church is doing. So I started a church in Columbus, Ohio called Watershed in 2006, and it was started in the theater, which was cool, Um, and, and we were doing some really cool things that other churches weren't doing in our area. We were doing things with the pride community, which is pretty frowned against at that time in our denomination. We were doing things like having a tattoo artist come in and do a live tattoo in one of our Easter services. We were doing, yeah, yes, it was fantastic, Chris. Um, We were doing things like uh, doing communion with beer and pretzels because we had a, a slew of Ohio State students come to church every Sunday just completely hungover. So we wanted to make it real to them and be like, hey, you guys, you can drink. And while you drink, just remember God loves you. This is great. We were doing some really cool things, and I was telling these gentlemen that. And I thought, as the pastor of this church, we were making a significant impact on people's lives. These guys did not like anything I was doing, they showed it emotionally their body chemistry, and then at the end of the meeting, the chair of the board asks the gentleman, asks the pastors, do you have anything that you would like to say to Luke before we close out? And one of the guys says, I think that you should stop hanging out with non-Christians because it seems like they're watering down your faith. seems like they're watering down your faith. Now, most of you don't know me. I have never developed this concept, or I like to call it a fad, an idea of thinking before you speak. Um, is just not in my cards. It's not in anybody's cards in my family. Uh, it's just not in my cards. But on that day, the pastor who said that to me, he found my flabbergast button and he stomped on it because I was dumbfounded. I had nothing to say because that's the complete antithesis of everything I believe. Not because I feel like I need to go try to save people or anything, but... But why would, I, why would I want to hang out with Christians only? That's boring. That's really boring. And that's, that's the antithesis of what I feel like Jesus did. Jesus was never just hanging out with religious people. So, this pastor's toxic theology was pretty much saying that if you are around people who are not like you, if you are around people who are outside of your faith or outside of your little boxes here, then those people are going to try to get you to do bad things. You don't really have control of your own thoughts, emotions, and your, your body. And for some reason, you're going to stop following Jesus because of their presence in your life. We are in, they are out. We are saved, we have the right password, but those people, they do not. This pastor's theology was essentially saying that if you're a Christian, you're clean. If you're not, you're dirty. And the dirtiness of the people outside of my folks, their filth is contagious. They're dirty. But you can see where I'm going with this. We've been in this series dirty for the past couple of weeks um, in Matthew chapter 15, and we're actually going through the whole book of Matthew, venturing through it, and I really love when churches do this, this expository preaching of going through the whole book, because we have to remember that this series we're in right now, Matthew 15, is a part of the larger story of Matthew. It fits inside of that. The author of Matthew, we can call him Matthew if you want to, there's... Yeah, why not? We don't know if they're a guy named Matthew, whatever. But he's writing to a specific group of people for a very specific reason during a specific time in history. He has a reason that he's doing it. So from the very first chapter of Matthew till the very last chapter of Matthew, the author has an agenda. The author is setting us on a trajectory to hear the Jesus story from his, perspective, uh, from his own perspective. It's like this, it's like this arc or arch. Ark? Ark? Arch? St. Louis Ark? Yeah, I don't know. It's like a sideways oval. Um, <laughs> that it's, like, it's, it's like this, and it curves. And, and at the top, the climax there, we're in Matthew 15. Matthew 15 is pretty much in the middle of the book of Matthew. And in this chapter, stuff happens that's monumental. In this chapter, the Jesus story changes. The Jesus story changes for the whole world, for the disciples, and we can really glean what Matthew is doing in this Jesus journey. So let's go ahead and read the scripture. Listen to the scripture. Let it sit with you for a second, because it's kind of interesting, and kind of see what it does to you, all right? So, in 21, then Jesus left Galilee and went north to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Gentile woman who lived there came to him, pleading, have mercy on me, Lord, Son of David, for my daughter is possessed by a demon, a demon that torments her severely. But Jesus gave her no reply, not even a word. Then his disciples urged him to send her away. Tell her to go away, they said. She's bothering us with all her begging. Then Jesus said to the woman, I was only sent I was sent only to help God's lost sheep, the people of Israel. But She came and worshipped him, pleading again. Lord, help me. Jesus responded, It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. She replied, That's true, Lord, but even dogs are allowed to eat the scraps that fall beneath their master's table. Dear woman, Jesus said to her, Your faith is great. Your request is granted. And her daughter was instantly healed. Interesting, right? I mean, Anybody have some weird emotions reading that one? So to fully understand this text that we just read, we have to keep in mind that it starts in 21, but there are 20 verses beforehand. And to fully understand this, we have to know what's going on in the 20 previous verses. And if you've been here the last couple weeks, you know what's going on. Chris started in in verse 1 with this story about the Pharisees uh, coming to Jesus and complaining to Jesus that the disciples were eating before they washed their hands. Now, washing your hands wasn't in the written law. This is what was called oral law. So they're coming and complaining to Jesus about stuff that's really not written down. So Jesus has this dialogue. Jesus has this back and forth forth with them and essentially tells the the uh, pharisees you're bastardizing the law the 613 laws there's not just 10 commandments there's 613 they were the laws that were given to the pharisees because this isn't pleasing for the pharisees to hear this is hard for them to hear because the law formed their identity The law is what set them apart. The law is what said you're different from every other nation in this world. Every other nation on this planet, you are different than them. You are my chosen people. So they think this Jesus guy's loco. Jesus is saying, no, 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 like you're 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 confusing this. You're messing with this. This actually isn't even law. So that's what happened in verses one through nine. And then starting in verse 10, Jesus gathers this crowd together. Now imagine with me, Jesus is at the height of his popularity. Jesus has been traveling around the Judean nation side, the Israeli nation side, and he's been doing some really remarkable things. He's been healing people. He's been loving on people that's never been accepted a day in their life. He's been telling the scripture, teaching the scripture in a different way, where if you remember in the scriptures, Jesus says, you've heard it said this way, but I tell you, he's teaching with a new kind of authority that are making people think and listen to the scriptures in a completely different way. And so he gathers these people around And he's followed. People are attracted to this man. People follow him and want to be a part of him. But not everybody. He's met with a lot of resistance from the religious Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, pretty much all the religious people and people in his hometown. They're unwilling to open up their eyes and listen to this new story that this Jesus guy is telling. I can imagine that Jesus is beginning to get frustrated. Frustration is setting, setting in for him as he's been dealing with this rejection and this resistance. And especially he's upset when he's listening to the teachers of the scripture, the guys who are telling people what the scriptures say, and they're using it to shame and oppress them. That's something very common still in our days. So Jesus gets this crowd together. And he starts telling a story about food entering your body and how it doesn't matter what you eat because it's just doo-doo in the end, right? Well, Jesus is saying it's not what goes in, but what? You guys know the scripture. It's what comes out. It's what comes out that's really in your heart. It's what comes out that's really in your heart. Hold up. Wait a minute, Jesus. Jesus just destroyed this barrier, this food law that actually created, like that actually set apart people. The Jews and the Gentiles were, were separated that had this barrier in between them because the food laws were supposed to do that. They were a central aspect of the Jewish identity. So Jesus comes in and he just demolishes this wall that's separating these two tribes of people except there's one really large wall left and that has to do with religiosity which is where our story picks up today. But before we get into that I, wanna, I want us to look at a slide in just a second, Calvin. Um, one of my, na- my favorite New Testament scholars, um, theologians, is a man named Marcus Borg. And when he was a professor in Oregon, he always told his students, just challenge your students. When you read scripture, ask the questions right here. Uh, why did the author say this thing? Why did the author say it right here? Why did the author decide to say this right here, right now, when they could have said that anywhere in the scriptures or they could have omitted that? Why did the author say this thing right here, right now to these people? Which is a great question for us to consider, especially with this kind of confusing scripture where Jesus calls a woman a dog. Now, if you want to, if you want to, uh, go back to the very first slide on verse 21, you can, just so you can follow along. Jesus has this crowd around him, and he leaves, and he intentionally heads north into the region of Tyre and Sidon. Matthew's audience, the original audience listening to this gospel, would have had red flags, red lights flashing, just horns. like Jews don't go in to Gentile area. Jews are the chosen people. Gentile area is filthy and dirty. We don't do this. Why is the story saying that Jesus went into Gentile area? In Matthew 10, just five short chapters away, which you guys have probably covered six years ago, um, (laughs) as we venture through this book, um, Jesus sends his disciples out. You remember this story? Jesus sends, sends his disciples out to heal and to love people and to spread his message. But he says, don't go into Gentile area. My message is for the lost sheep of Israel only, which is what, one of the verses that we saw today as well. Jesus is reaffirming this. And then in the next chapter in Matthew 11, Jesus refers to Tyre and Sidon, these two territories, and he calls them unrepentant cities. They're pagan. They're Gentile. The author of Matthew is doing something really special here. He's really trying to push this this notion that these Gentile people are the complete opposite of everything that the chosen people of Israel stands for. They are in opposition to to Yahweh God. They are impure. They are dirty. We are the righteous. We are the Jews. We are the chosen people of God. This is hostile territory. You don't Enter this territory. But then the scripture says Jesus is in this Gentile area and a Canaanite woman comes out shouting at Jesus. Now, this is really, really important, and I get really excited over stuff like this this context. This exact story is also found in Mark chapter 7. And in the Gospel of Mark, Mark refers to this woman as a Syro Phoenician woman. And the reason that Mark does that is because Tyre and Sidon was in Phoenicia. The book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, is thought to be the very first gospel ever ever written. So it's this very first gospel. And the author of Matthew uses the book of Mark to actually uh, take some of the stories and tell some stories differently. He uses it as a reference. So Matthew deliberately changes this word Syrophoenician to Canaanite. Why did he say that right here, right now, to these people? Now, is anybody... Hebrew scripture, Old Testament nerds here, does anybody remember that, that Canaanite word? Okay, it goes back to, all the way to Genesis 10. And everybody remember Noah, the guy with the boat? Well, Noah has three sons, after the boat docked, Noah gets trashed, he gets drunk, and he passes out, and he's naked, bucket naked. And, and one of his sons, Ham, his name's Ham, poor Ham, uh, Ham comes in, and he sees his dad naked. Now, in this time, for someone to be naked and for you to see naked, the the shame was on the naked person. The shame went to the person who saw you naked. So when Noah wakes up and he hears that his son Ham saw him naked, Noah curses Ham. No, yeah, like you saw him naked. Okay, big deal, Dad. Weird. Um, But why would you curse me? Ham is actually the father of the Canaanites. So not a good start for these people. And then, like five chapters later, God does this covenant thing, really weird story with Abraham, where there's animals cut in half and a smoking pot goes between the animals. And God says to Abraham, look all around. I'm going to give you all of this land everywhere for you and your descendants. I'm going to even give you the land of all these people. And the Canaanites were listed there. So the Canaanites had already inhabited this land. And God said, I'm going to give you that. Sounds like colonization, a little bit. Well then, in the book of Joshua, after Moses died, Joshua is tasked to lead the Israelites into the promised land. And in order for Joshua to lead the Israelites into the promised land, they have to go in to Canaan and strip the people from their land. That's a really nice way of saying it. Essentially what happens is Joshua believes that he has to go in and he's supposed to take all of their possessions, steal all of their livestock, and if anyone fights back, they should be murdered. So, there's this history that's happened between the Jews and the Canaanites. Take this history, take this pain, take this animosity, this resentment, take the, take the side of the Jews and say, wait, our God told us to wipe you out. And then let's take the side of the Canaanites and said, Your God told you to kill us? To wipe out this, wipe out our people? That's the God you worship? No wonder the Canaanites don't worship Yahweh God. So take all of that history and that animosity and let that fester for 500 plus years. And this is the history and the relationship between the Jews and the Canaanites. To say that these two tribes were enemies... Is a massive understatement. And to top it off, this word Canaanite that we see in the scripture, it was out of usage. No one talked about Canaanites again, ever. Like, it just wasn't a word that they used. So Matthew's deliberately dredging up all this history and all this pain to say, look how dirty this woman is. Look how much of an outsider she is. Look how much she is different than we are. Sorry, I'm spitting all over the place. So, that's the history that we have right here. This poor woman. This poor Canaanite woman, she's not just a woman to the Jews, she's a foreigner. She's a Gentile. She's a pagan. She's an enemy of the chosen. She has a daughter who's demon-possessed, which is just another way of saying she her daughter has an unclean spirit how much more can i say to you to get you to understand that from for that time the jews believed that everything that this woman represented her identity her race her ethnicity her religiosity disqualified her from receiving god yahweh god's grace mercy justice and righteousness there are still people who exist in our world today like that right Still people who sometimes we think, maybe they don't deserve. So this woman isn't just a figure in history. This woman isn't just somebody that we connect with in this verse. But this woman is also a representation of the others that are in our lives today. So I ask, we have to ask this question, who are the others to you? Who are those people? Who are the people that when you hear a news article about, you hear somebody talking about you just got to turn off the TV. You got to turn off your phone. Who are the persons or the persons who who make your blood boil? That political party. This group. Who are the people that just drive you crazy? Who are those people? Because we all have them, right? I mean, as much as I don't want to admit it, I have them. And I create boundaries. I create barriers and labels to separate myself from them. Probably, honestly, just to make myself feel a little bit better about myself, but also to create this distance between them and myself because I don't want to be perceived as being like them. Sure, I may look like them. I may have the same skin color as them. I may be the same sexuality as them, but I'm not like them. So I push and I create boundaries to say, look how far away I am from those dirty ones makes myself feel better I'm superior this is exactly what I do it for as much as I don't want to admit it so it's not just a scripture but it's I find myself in this very story so then we find this woman in this story and she comes and she pleads to Jesus she gets down on her hands and knees and she says Jesus please have mercy on me Lord son of God now this is messianic language so she apparently has heard of Jesus somewhere She's heard Jesus' message. Maybe she's heard him speak. Maybe a friend told her something. And she's a desperate mother that's doing everything she can to find healing for her daughter. Things that we would do. This is something that we would do. Have mercy on me, Lord. Have mercy. And what's the scripture say? Jesus doesn't even respond. This is where this scripture starts to play with my emotions just a little bit. Because we've seen. Throughout the book of Matthew, Jesus' compassion, Jesus' grace, his love just shines through him, but he disses this woman. He disses this woman. This woman is a pagan. My ministry is for the lost sheep of Israel. And the disciples are so fed up with him, with her. Get rid of her. Send her away, which is also, it could be said, hey, give her what she wants. Please, could you just give her what she wants so she could just leave us alone? And then Unfortunately, this was a common practice in Jesus' day in 1st century A.D. When When a Jew had an encounter with a Gentile person, you just ignore him. You just ignore him. Who's this person? Who does this woman think she is coming and speaking to me? Jesus reinforces this mindset to the disciples by not saying anything. Yet, yet, she persisted, right? And she falls to the ground. She's begging and pleading Jesus. Let's put ourselves in this woman's sandals for a little bit. She has a daughter who needs desperate help. So she's on the ground in this hot dirt. She's dusty. She's dirty. She's weeping. People are verbally telling her to go away. We don't want you here. She's at rock bottom. And what's Jesus say to her? It's not fair to throw the food for the children to the dogs. Anybody else catch that? to the dogs. Dang. It's not fair to take the food from the table of the children of the children of Israel and throw it to the dogs. What is what is Matthew doing right here? Why did Jesus say this? So, here is where like I'll be very honest. There are endless endless ideas and opinions about what this scripture means. There are so many and here's why. Dogs in the Bible, they represent unclean animals. They're not domesticated, they're not house pets, they're not cute, cuddly little babies, they're not a part of your family, they're scavengers. Uh, One guy called them homeless mongrels. There's a verse in the Proverbs that says, a foolish man will return, or a foolish man will be like a dog who returns to its vomit, you know, which we've seen the dogs eat their vomit, like, oh yeah, foolish person. I get that. Dogs, it was not nice to call someone a dog whatsoever, but this was a common Jewish epithet to call somebody. This was common in Jesus' day to refer to a Gentile as a dog. All throughout scripture, we see dog, 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 and it's always an unclean image. So to call a Gentile a dog was something very common. So here's where you get to kind of interpret scripture on, by yourself, you know what dogs represent, and so why does Jesus say this? Some theologians, some people have some opinions that uh, say, you know, what, Jesus wasn't really insulting this woman. He called her a puppy, and and it's just a little puppy baby, you know, like just a little soft, weak, and kind of makes Jesus feel static, right? Like 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 Jesus is so perfect, you know, he's kind of like a robot. It doesn't feel really feel like he has the the brain the capacity to to say anything remotely crazy you know it kind of it just feels like jesus is a robot to me and then on the opposite side there are theologians that said jesus was a man of his day he grew up in a misogynistic society and so jesus is using a racial slur to dehumanize this woman which also makes me go you know, I'm, a, I'm cool with Jesus making mistakes. I think that's a part of being human, learning and growing, becoming wholly yourself. I'm okay with Jesus making mistakes. There's a point to which I go, I don't know if I want to follow a, raci- a person that's blatantly racist. It, these two opposing sides make us ask a lot of questions about, about who Jesus is and what it means to be fully human. But here's, with all my reading, here's what my research has led me to believe. I think Matthew is doing something pretty revolutionary here. The audience that Matthew is speaking to would have been a group of Jews who would have been really struggling with the idea of allowing Gentiles into their sacred faith because we are the chosen the Gentiles are not the chosen. And what we know about Jesus is that Jesus loves subverting cultural norms of his day. Jesus loves flipping the script and rethinking societal norms and religious norms. Jesus is doing something new, just like the song we just said. Jesus is doing something new. And in a system of Jesus' day, in a system that was It was commonplace. It was allowed for a religious group of people to dehumanize and oppress another person based on her faith, based on her religion, based on her ethnicity. I think Jesus is using this slur to expose the abuse that she has endured from people like him that represent his faith. I think Jesus, in a very Jesus fashion, is using this slur to bring out the hypocrisy and the division that religion so often creates. And this isn't just something that happened in antiquity. This is something that happens in our churches still today. This is something that happens in our town, in our jobs, in our homes. And this Canaanite woman, this poor outsider woman, she takes that label of a dog onto herself as an example of this radiant model of bold, creative, resourceful faith. And she says, yes, I am what you call me, but dogs still got to eat, right? Dogs still get the crumbs, and Jesus says to her what? Jesus says, woman, your faith is great. In that hour, in that hour, your daughter is healed. What a crazy story this is. I actually kind of forgot about it up until when Chris told me I, uh, this is the scripture we're going to preach on. And in my 15 years of pastoring, I have never preached on it. So I was like, oh, what am I going to do with this story? I don't know where I land. Up until now, Jesus' ministry has only been for the lost sheep of Israel, the Jews. And then boom, out of nowhere, the author of Matthew tells a story about God's grace and how how confined God's grace can be to certain labels and to certain groups. And all of a sudden, they break down these barriers and they break down these boundaries that we so often erect ourselves. Jesus traverses all of them to say God's love and mercy and grace is inclusive to everyone, everywhere, for all. Time, no matter what. No matter your labels, no matter what you believe, Jesus' love is for you. Great is your faith to the woman who everyone least expected to have faith. This is yet another example in the book of Matthew where an outsider, a religious other, sees and understands what the other religious insiders don't. And this leads us all the way to the Great Commission where Jesus tells his disciples, Go out. And make disciples of all nations. Tell my story. Tell my story to everyone. My life. What I've shown you is for everyone. There are no boundaries. No, it's for everybody. Of course. Of course. We see what the author of Matthew is doing in this book. Opening the eyes of the people in his church. But what lessons can we in the 21st century church glean from this incredible story? it's definitely no surprise that we're constantly confronted with the disparities of people in the margins. Racism, sexism, xenophobia, uh, sexuality-based violence, and on and on and on. I believe that this is a lesson, Calvin, there's a script, uh, slide for this, this is a lesson telling us that, that an exclusive mentality, any framework, Any worldview that we have that categorizes someone as an other, an outsider, not a part of my group because they don't believe what I believe, they have the wrong religion, we worship the one true God, any any outsider, any other can lead to prejudice, does lead to prejudice, which often leads to partiality and discrimination. Any framework where we think someone is outside of our mix because we have the right password can lead to partiality and discrimination. And again, at times we don't like to admit it. There are times that we so often fail to include others in our own working understanding of God's grace. And so to change our thinking, to change our perspectives, is difficult work. Have you ever had to unlearn something that was taught to you? Maybe in the church, this embedded theology that you grew up believing this thing? Because you trust people. You trust the people who say these things. You love your parents. You love your pastor. And then you get to a point where you go like, I can't because the rubber doesn't meet the road. What I've heard and what I've lived, these are two separate things. I have to unlearn this, and it takes time, which is why this community is so fantastic, because it requires us having these conversations as open, open theological conversations of thought and, and conversation. We have to have these so we can discover what we believe and what we don't believe. So who's our other? To whom are we closed off? Are we individually, as individuals, and corporately, as Compass Church, positioned to love and accept people within the margins? Friends, this story is challenging because it calls delight my crap. Roxy said, why are you doing this to the people who sit in the front? Who cares? Who cares how much money they paid? And as funny as it was, because it was funny, (laughs) I created boundaries. I created labels. And that can lead to partiality and discrimination. So this scripture today is challenging, but it's also so liberating and so reconciling. So my friends, may we all have eyes and ears open. May God open our eyes if they're not, and open our ears if they're not open, so that we can hear and so that we can see the creation of God in every human being, no matter where they live, no matter where they're from. And may we be aware of those in our society, like this Canaanite woman, who are demanding worth and value. Like the Jews who looked at this woman from the time that she was born. She grew up with this story, with these, these stories in the history of her people that she had no inherent worth or value or dignity in the eyes of Jews. And sometimes we can become so insular that we forget the worth and the dignity of others. And may the expansive, inclusive love of Jesus Christ be upon us that may shine through so we can love others the way that God loves us. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for loving us in a way that sometimes we just don't understand. Um, but that's the point of this all, right, is that, that we're all students. We're always students. We're all disciples. And, and what we've learned once doesn't have to be what we carry to our grave. And what we, how we live now doesn't have to be how we live later. To, tomorrow doesn't have to be like today. There's things new. Jesus, you make all things new, and we ask to make all things new in our hearts. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would change us, you would transform us, so that we can be like this Canaanite woman who, who broke the rules of decorum to go and plead for mercy, and we can be like the Jesus figure in this story that says, yes, yes, my child, my daughter, you are new, you have faith, when no one expected you to be the person who has faith. May we break down the barriers, may we break down the walls that we have created, that society has created, so we may ultimately love others the way that you love us. Amen. Thank you for joining us at Compass. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have any questions about Compass or this message, contact us at our website, www.compassbn.com.